The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning, Source Church. Would you rise with me for the reading of God's Word? Um, Today, our reading includes four short passages. Um, Please don't bother trying to flip through in your Bible. You're not going to be able to keep up um, and follow along on the screen. (laughs) So first, (laughs) first, Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Next is Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask God. This is the word of the Lord. This on? Yeah, there we go. Cool. Uh, given the, the uh, topic of our sermon... This morning, I thought we would just take a few minutes to spend some time in prayer, uh, particularly for the those who are weak and vulnerable uh, as regards their physical lives. Uh, so please join me in prayer. Our merciful God, you have told us about the value of each and every human life. We thank you that you care for the weak and the vulnerable for the aged, for the infants, for those who are sick, for those who are troubled. You care for them and you are compassionate. And so, Lord, we want to pray this morning for Ben Lawrence's dad, who is navigating poor health while also grieving the loss of his wife. Uh, We thank you for meeting the family's immediate needs, but we pray even more that you'd provide for his needs for housing and for medical care. We ask that you'd give Ben and Sarah the resources that they need, both to protect ben, Ben's dad's dignity of life and also just to encourage him in the Lord. So we pray that these next years, even if they involve limited mobility for him, that they will be the richest yet in his experience of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to pray for the Bratcher's nephew, Jacob, who's in great danger with Legionnaire's disease. Lord, we pray that you would give doctors the ability to clear his lungs. We pray that you would spare his life. And we pray that this would be a very important time in his life going forward and that his hope would be in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we pray for Sue's daughter-in-law, Faith, and her baby who's on the way. God, in the midst of concerns about high blood pressure, we pray that the delivery would be safe and that this child would come to know you and would walk with you all the days of her life. God, we thank you so much for the news of the paddocks um, awaiting an adopted baby girl. Lord, we pray for the smooth delivery of that baby, for health all around, and we pray for a smooth process of welcoming the baby into their family. Lord, we pray that every family in this church would welcome that child and, and treasure that child. God, we pray also that you would be at work in the life of the birth mother over these coming years. We pray that this process of seeing the pregnancy through and doing her best for this child would start a process of awakening in her. May she come to know you in a saving way in years to come. And Lord, for all of the children at the Source Church, all the little ones, God, we ask that you would be forming them even this morning in their classes. We ask that the truth of your word would be poignant in their lives, that it would, it would light up the darkness for them. It would make sense of their existence. We pray that your Holy Spirit would call them to Christ, would open their eyes, and that none of these little ones would be lost. We ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> in September 1965, the bassist and composer Charles Mingus and his octet were playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And they gripped the crowd's attention with a new song entitled, Don't Let It Happen Here. For the lyrics, Mingus had reworked a poem about one man's experience in Nazi Germany. The lyrics said, One day they came and they took the communists. And I said nothing because I was not a communist. Then one day they came and they took the people of the Jewish faith. And I said nothing because I had no faith. Then one day they came and they took the unionists and I said nothing because I was not a unionist. They burned the Catholic churches one day and I said nothing because I was a Protestant. One day they came and they took me and I could say nothing because I was as guilty as they were of genocide, destroying the rights of any man to live. And then there's this rhythmic but chaotic sounding horn section, and then the refrain is repeated. Don't let it happen here. Oh, Lord, don't let it happen here. As we've been looking at the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, we've said repeatedly that if we're seeing God's law rightly, no commandment is a reason to pat ourselves on the back and say, okay, I'm doing all right there. But in fact... We stand guilty of all. And so, yes, just like Mingus's lyrics, the awful truth is that we have all turned a blind eye to the destruction of life at different times and in different ways. But even more than that, we have all lived and acted out of a heart posture that represents the very roots of murder. And only when we come to see that clearly can we begin to live in a way that truly celebrates and cherishes all of human life? My outline for this morning is fairly simple. I just want to talk about the act of murder itself. Then secondly, we'll talk about our complicity in a murderous society. Then we're going to talk about the motivation for murder. And finally, what is the solution for murder? So first, let's examine this commandment at its core, prohibiting 
the act of murder. This is such a brief command that we're in danger of assuming too quickly that we understand just what it means. But first, I want to note that the Hebrew verb that's used for murder here, it does refer specifically to the killing of persons, not animals. So if you've ever seen those PETA signs or or like some vegan advertising that says meat is murder, well, the Bible says no. The killing of humans is an entirely different category than the killing of animals. Also, this verb is never used in the context of war in the Bible. And that's not to say that war can't be wrong and immoral. Many wars of cruelty and and oppression were opposed in the, uh, the Old Testament and condemned. But what we can say is that a just war, hypothetically, is not prohibited by this command. So the Bible is very realistic that war will happen. In fact, it promises that wars will increase in the time before Christ returns. Sometimes war is necessary to protect people or to stop the aggression of others. You know, it's interesting in uh, Luke chapter 3, there's this group of uh, people listening to John the Baptist And they're responding to his message in different ways. And there's some Roman soldiers. And they ask John, well, what should we do then? And John's response, he he doesn't say, find a new career, you murderers. No, instead he says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So all to say that this word murder, it gets after killing humans and it gets after killing in cold blood, not in a situation of organized battle. But I want to make sure that we see this verse in the context of all of chapter 20. Remember that the Decalogue started with the words, I am Yahweh, your God. Now, if I say to my son, hey, don't scream out scary animal noises in public. Okay, that's a fairly simple command. There's no doubt about what I mean. But if I say, I am your father, do not scream out scary animal noises in public, well then, my son has to think about it. Okay, does dad simply not enjoy animal noises? Is dad worried about his reputation? Why would people think badly of him if I made animal noises? Am I not to make loud animal noises because I'm supposed to be like my dad? Does my dad have a special duty to ensure that the people around me in public aren't scared or disgusted by strange noises, and so forth? So the link to a relationship makes a big difference. It it frames the whole commandment. And similarly here, when it says, I am Yahweh, your God, you shall not murder, then we we have to have our eyes open, not only for what exactly does this command prohibit, but also what's the connection to Yahweh that drives this command? And the answer was given quite clearly, actually, long before the time of Moses, right? As Noah and his family were stepping off of the boat into the new world of sorts, God gave them a very direct instruction about the value of human life. This is from Genesis chapter 9. It says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So the connection is spelled out for us. The lifeblood of humans requires a reckoning because God made man in his own image. The Bible insists that we are more than highly developed animals. We are embodied souls. 
And so even after the fall, we display so much about the nature of our creator king through our lives, our creativity, our drive for relationship, our divine spark, our immortal souls. We mark this earth as the territory of the great king. So such image-bearing lives like that, they, they can't just be discarded without his permission. He has a purpose for them. And that's why in Genesis 9, he specifically established a reckoning for those who would steal what is his right alone. He is the giver and taker of life. And if we're going to steal that right from him, the principle is that murderers should have their own lives taken from them as well. And that principle is carried over to the New Testament. Romans 13 says, The ruler is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This means that in principle, Christians should be for capital punishment. Now I say in principle because... It is possible for a judicial system to be so corrupt that people are frequently falsely accused and wrongfully executed. So some Christians in some places may say, I just can't support a system that has wrongfully executed so many. There's freedom of conscience there. But if we could guarantee the integrity of a criminal situation so that there wouldn't be wrong convictions, then none of us should have qualms about capital punishment. The purpose isn't somehow to get even. The purpose is that a statement needs to be made as to the sacred nature of life. You don't get to destroy human life and then go on enjoying that gift of life yourself. Now you may repent and even come to know Christ on death row as many have done and then they can die in peace knowing that even after justice has rightfully been served on them leading to their physical death, by mercy they can look forward to life forever free from the infinitely worse penalty of spiritual death. But it shouldn't surprise us that when a society rejects the notion of divine justice, when a society loses a concept of a life to come, that they would then also reject capital punishment. Because according to their understanding, well, this life is all there is. And the only motivation for the death sentence could be human vengeance. So it feels much more humane to just have the state pay for their murderer's room and board for decades to come. But what does it say about the value of human life, the the priceless and sacred nature of the image of God? It's very much cheapened. And, And does it surprise us then that there are more and more people whose lives are in chaos and they're just unafraid to pick up a weapon and risk getting put in permanent timeout? When we reject God's good commands, we create a society that's actually more not less violent. Now, if this talk of murder seems a little bit too cut and dry, remember that the Ten Commandments are like broad headings over a much broader catalog of case law that we see throughout Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that's true for this command not to murder also. So there are additional sections that deal with killing. And in those sections, distinctions are made, just like we have in our American legal code. So there's a distinction between murder and manslaughter whether it was intentional or not. So in, in ancient Israel, people who caused death accidentally could flee to a city of refuge that was specifically established for situations like that. But those who caused death 
intentionally would be hunted down by the avenger of blood. But even in the case of manslaughter, think about the cost to an ancient Israelite of, of even having that happen to them, to have to live in a city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Uh, that could be the rest of your life, or at the very least, probably a few decades. Um, and that would mean that any life that you had arranged for yourself as you knew it was over. Um, or at least it was potentially interrupted for, for a long time. So understanding the seriousness of just being careless with someone else's life, that then prepares the people to receive later in Exodus more laws about being proactive in protecting the lives of others. Uh, so some other laws. To knowingly endanger human life through kidnapping, that also merited the death penalty. Um, if an ox, your ox had, everyone had oxes back then. Um, if your ox had a history of violence and you didn't keep it contained and then it goes and gores someone to death, actually it says that both the ox and the owner are to be put to death. And in that culture, homes had flat roofs that were often used for various kinds of purposes, kind of like a deck or a balcony that you could do crafts on or chores. And so there's this law that a parapet or a, a short wall must be built around the edge of the roof, quote, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. And there are also other laws that get after proactively protecting life. So um, you're to leave some standing grain in your fields at harvest time so that needy persons can glean and not starve to death. And debts are to be canceled every 50 years so that they don't crush people's lives. And the weak and the vulnerable, like foreigners and orphans and widows, are to be shown compassion. And if your carelessness leads to the harm of others, God's law says that you should personally absorb the consequences of that negligent behavior. Because there's this awareness uh, that at some level, our carelessness or our cruelty that diminishes the quality of life of another at some level, that also compromises their physical life itself. So this prohibition on destroying life, as we unpack it more fully, it translates into a whole culture of proactive care for the well-being of others. Now, how would laws like these translate into our own culture? Uh, well, certainly we should have an eye for the safety of others in all that we do which isn't always an easy thing, right? Um, because sometimes you can be so concerned for the safety of those you care about most that you're actually compromising um, the safety or quality of life of others. So it takes, um, it takes a lot of wisdom and um, for, uh, forethought to um, think about how the, your actions are affecting the community at large. We need to take care of our property making sure as much as we reasonably can that it's not going to cause harm to others. So we're not going to leave rusty nails in our yard. We're not going to let uh, all this ice accumulate on our doorsteps so that someone could fall and break their neck. Uh, we're going to make sure that our car is well-maintenanced so that it's not an accident waiting to happen. Uh, if we own guns, the attitude with which we keep and use them is going to be one of the utmost caution and sobriety, not bravado and entitlement. 
And we're also just going to try to love others in how we use our finances and our other physical resources. And I don't want to say too much here because I want to let your imaginations run wild with ways that you could boldly and creatively share your resources with those who are at risk. And when we grasp this good gift of God's law in protecting life, these aren't heavy obligations that we have to perform in order to somehow win God's pleasure. No, in Christ we know that we already have God's approval. So what these commands do is they show us this exciting kingdom culture that we get to live within and we get to grow into as spirit-empowered people of the king. But when you live in a fallen world, bloodshed is not easy to escape. Even if you're personally vigilant to protect others, Uh, and to cherish life, and that's because we live in a murderous society. We live in a society in which we are all indirectly, by default, involved. So let's talk about complicity in a murderous society. You know, one way to look at the book of Exodus is, is a contrast between life under slavery to Pharaoh and then life in free service to God. And under Pharaoh's rule, the Hebrew slaves were subjected to violence and to state organized genocide. And this law was given so that God's people would never again return to that way of life. Now, unlike ancient Israel, we today are not under a theocracy ruled by God himself. We are a people in exile. Uh, And so we see that our surrounding culture actually has a lot of similarities to ancient Egypt. It's a culture that's in slavery to the tyranny of false gods. It's a culture in which the weak are subjected to violence at the hands of the strong. And state-organized genocide is veiled, but increasingly less so. Medically speaking, life begins at conception. No one denies that fact. And so Exodus 21 says that if a man hits a woman and her child comes out of her dead, he shall die. Life for life. Abortion only becomes thinkable if we abandon the Bible's insistence that a human life is not just animal life, but it is actually an embodied soul. When we view people as mere animals, and it doesn't matter if the fetus has a beating heart or is able to feel pain within the womb. All that matters is that we haven't decided to grant this unborn child personhood yet. But once you open that Pandora's box, where personhood is not linked with the medical life of a human, but is instead subjectively granted or denied, well, it quickly becomes like Nazi Germany. People in poverty, people of the wrong race, with genetic disorders or with various disabilities, or even just undesirable traits in the eyes of others can become the target of government programs for elimination. This isn't the stuff of science fiction. Under China's one-child policy, a disproportionate number of girls were aborted. The nation of Iceland is boasting that through abortion, it has eliminated Down syndrome. And here we need to pause, and we need to affirm that Down syndrome kids and disabled persons of all types are a gift from God to society, and they have a definite purpose to fulfill on this earth. Now, that's not to say that the difficulties with which these people struggle are inherently good. 
No, disability and genetic disorder are products of the fall. They're results of the curse that lies on this earth. But at the same time, these are still people made in the image of God, and their lives are not at all beyond his sovereign plan. Remember, back in Exodus chapter 4, when God put Moses in his place, he said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Do we not believe that God can be with the faculties of any person? Even if they can't speak clearly, do we know that they don't perceive and understand? That they can't be praying beautiful things in their own limited way? Do we know that God isn't using them to shame the wise and the strong in this world? When we deny life to persons of all kinds, then we are playing God. We make a statement that life begins and ends at our command, not his. Now similarly, assisted suicide, or any suicide, only becomes thinkable if we don't believe that the human life is an embodied soul. If we just die and that's it, if there is no creator, there's no eternal purpose, then okay, I guess we can have a utilitarian view of human life. If there's no God, then sure, we have the right to say, I want to end the pain. But if there is a God, then we have to allow that he has a purpose for the pain. Even the pain of chronic depression or nerve pain or degenerative diseases or terminal cancer. Do you doubt God's ability to speak profoundly to or through suffering people, even in their worst moments at the very end? Stealing that time that God has appointed is murder. And where assisted suicide is embraced, then a functional culture of euthanasia quickly follows. Is it really the sick person who's choosing this for themselves? Or are they succumbing to increased pressure from society and expectations of family members that they not be a burden? The people of God have to be countercultural in cherishing the weak and the elderly and the unborn and the mentally challenged and the terminally ill. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? It was because of overlooking evil that the old covenant people of God went into exile. Isaiah describes it like this. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And in the same way, we can be sure that whenever the so-called people of God aid and abet a culture of murder, Christ will not indefinitely let his name remain on that church. Now, so far we've stayed fairly zoomed out in our contemplation of murder. We understand what it is. We see how a culture of murder is at work in our society today. But so as long as I avoid those actions and as long as I resist that culture, I'm good, right? No. We, we won't really understand the horror of murder and the devious nature of this temptation until we see the platform that it has in our own hearts. So let's talk about the motivation for murder. Murder always starts in our thoughts and in our feelings. We, we see that even in the first murder that's recorded in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was angry 
It doesn't even necessarily say that he was angry at Abel. He might have been angry at God, angry at himself, angry at the world, maybe all of the above. But Abel got in the way, and Cain was envious of the approval that Abel enjoyed. So God warned him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And the choice is the same for each of us. The temptation begins with feeling angry. Now, anger in itself, that, that feeling that, that first comes over you, that's not necessarily a sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. But does it linger? Is that feeling allowed to lead to contempt? And then contempt leads to hatred, and hatred leads to murder. If there's any contempt, then we've already compromised the person's humanity. We've, in our minds, discarded them as an image bearer of the divine. It's such a slippery slope. If we're allowing ourselves really any place for prolonged anger and feeling justified in that, then let's let Jesus' words shock us out of that. Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So anger is dangerous. But also dangerous is the envy that we saw in Cain's situation. James chapter 4 says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, was James writing to the New Testament church and saying that murders were actually happening in their midst? Probably not. What he's doing is he's taking Jesus' expansion of the command in Matthew 5 and saying, people... In your hearts, you're as good as pulling the trigger. And God sees that, and he will judge that. The point is that the impulse to murder is based on emotions that we let rule us every day. Road rage, perceived injustice at your kid's sporting event, fury at the news, that twitching in your face when you can't control your environment, ranting on social media, impatience with your family. Who do you get angry at? Is it your husband or wife? Is it your kids, your parents? Is it your neighbors, co-workers, bosses? Is it the stranger who's making your coffee? How do you justify that anger? And what does that say about how you view God's giving of life and dignity to that other person? If you nurse some sort of right to feel grievance in these little things, then how are you going to respond when the stakes are higher? You'll definitely respond by dehumanizing the other person. Maybe not physically killing them, but doing your best otherwise to erase their dignity as a person created in the image of God. When it comes to protecting the humanity of others, Leviticus 19 verses 17 to 18 sets the bar high. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. As much as we might like to make distinctions between any reaction that we would have and something really serious like murder, Scripture actually connects our hidden grudges with the crime of destroying life. First John says simply, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That brooding anger, that nursed resentment, that contempt that you feel, that hatred, though you may never call it by that name, those feelings that you live in, they make you a person stained with blood, even if not one drop is spilled. So we have to face the fact that each of us has at times embraced the very desires that are at the root of murder. Maybe we, maybe we actually have compromised the physical life of another person. Or maybe just in order to put ourselves first, we at times would have wished them away. We've devalued the gift of life. We've played God and, and spoken and acted as if we knew better than him who should have the right to keep using up air. So what now? We need to talk about the solution for murder. When we strike out at, the, at life or even at the dignity of life of others, we embody the attitude of Cain toward Abel. He said, he's nothing to me. What am I, my brother's keeper? And just like Abel's blood, the damage that we have done is crying out to God. There is a need for justice. But thankfully... Hebrews 11 reminds us that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood says that justice must be done. Jesus' blood says that justice has been done. So our good news proclaims that while none of us have rightly valued human life as something sacred, while none of us could ever hope to undo the damage that's been done to others or to the honor of God, in whose image every person is created, there is still hope. Because God has put in place a work of total renewal and new creation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have caused death in various ways, but he willingly plunged into death itself and drained it of its power over us and over the future of God's world. But just as we saw at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, the blood of the Lamb of God can only benefit those who take shelter under it. You know, it's the ultimate irony and kind of the greatest darkness that, that uh, our anger and envy and malice and violence against people created in God's image, it required that the one who is the exact imprint of the Father's nature had to be killed. Let's just pause now and visualize all the enmity that we've had against other people, whether it's passive or active in how it showed up, the resentment, the disgust that you harbored, the ways that you lashed out or went cold, the statements you implicitly or explicitly made about a, the person's worth, or the ways in which you just couldn't be bothered by their needs, and so you cut them out or you cut them off. Confess those silently to the Lord right now.
whether societally or individually, whether passive or active, whether it was murder or just the seeds of it, our deeds of taking life led to the death of the one who never should have experienced death. So in a sense, we were part of the crowd to whom Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 3. He said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So here are the instructions Peter gave them next. He said, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, most people in this room have already come to rest in the finished work of Christ. If not, then this is a call for you to truly turn from your lack of compassion, your anger, envy, hatred, violence for the first time today. Trust that because of the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sake, your sins can truly be blotted out. But for all of us, even if you've been walking with Christ for years, this is a call for new repentance. It's a call for a fuller refreshing from the presence of the Lord as you invite him again to be Lord over your emotions, over your expectations, your priorities, your relationships. Ask him to make you, in the truest sense, your brother and sister's keeper. In fact, let's do that together now in prayer. Our God and Father, we know that you have revealed yourself as slow to anger. We ask that you would make us the same. Lord, free us from the self-righteousness that fuels our anger and our envy. Teach us to see your workmanship in every human life and to trust that you can bring great purpose even out of lives that don't make sense to us or that seem to be opposed to us. You can make great purpose out of what starts in pain or disadvantage. Lord, enable us to love our enemies. Enable us to love those who are inconvenient for us. Only you can do this work of new creation in us. So we look to you. We honor you as the Lord of life and the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'll invite Pastor Victor to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper.